So Matthew 21, verse 23 to 32. Jésus se rendit au temple et se mit à enseigner. Alors les chefs des prêtres et les responsables du peuple vinrent le trouver et l'interpellèrent. « Par quelle autorité agis-tu ainsi Qui t'a donné l'autorité de faire cela ?» Jésus leur répondit, « Moi aussi j'ai une question à vous poser, une seule. Si vous me répondez, je vous dirai à mon tour de quel droit je fais cela. De qui Jean tenait-il son mandat pour baptiser De Dieu ou des hommes ?» Alors ils se mirent à raisonner intérieurement, si nous disons de Dieu, il va nous demander « Pourquoi alors n'avez-vous pas cru en lui ?» Mais si nous répondons des hommes, nous avions bien lieu de craindre la réaction de la foule, car tout le monde tient Jean pour un prophète. Ils répondirent donc à Jésus « Nous ne savons pas. » Et lui de leur répliquer « Eh bien moi non plus, je ne vous dirai pas par quelle autorité j'agis comme je le fais. »« Que pensez-vous de l'histoire que voici ?» ajouta Jésus. Un homme avait deux fils. Il alla trouver le premier et lui dit, « Mon fils va aujourd'hui travailler dans notre vigne. »« Je n'en ai pas envie, lui répondit celui-ci. » Mais plus tard, il regretta d'avoir répondu ainsi et se rendit dans la vigne. Le père alla trouver le second fils et lui fit la même demande. Celui-ci lui répondit, « Oui, mon Seigneur, j'y vais. » Mais il n'y alla pas. « Lequel des deux a fait la volonté de son père ?» C'est le premier, répondirent-ils. Et Jésus ajouta, « Vraiment, je vous l'assure, les collecteurs d'impôts et les prostituées vous précéderont dans le royaume de Dieu. En effet, Jean est venu. Il vous a montré ce qu'est une vie juste, et vous n'avez pas cru en lui, tandis que les collecteurs d'impôts et les prostituées ont cru en lui. Et bien que vous ayez eu leur exemple sous vos yeux, vous n'avez pas éprouvé les regrets qui auraient pu vous amener enfin à croire à lui. » Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Wow. Cool. Thanks, Aladi. And thank you guys for singing happy birthday. I don't think I've ever had that many people sing happy birthday to me. All right. Well, like Dan said, I'm Scott. I'm one of the leaders here at Park Hill. And I actually moved down here in October of 2017 to be a part of what God is doing here in Park Hill. And I wanted to say that it's been such an honor, even just this short amount of time being a church, to be praying and serving along, alongside all of you to see God's will be done in San Diego as it is in heaven. And so we, as a church, have been going through the Gospel of Matthew for almost over a year now. And um, we've actually just reached Jesus' last week of his life. We've spent the last 20 chapters going through 33 years of Jesus' life and mainly three years of his ministry in 20-ish chapters. And then now we just hit the last week. So if we divide those 20 chapters over the three years of Jesus' ministry, it comes to about six and a half years of Jesus, uh, six and a half chapters per year of Jesus' ministry. But then once we hit chapter 21, Matthew hits the breaks hard. So we go from six and a half chapters a year to eight chapters just in one week. So to picture this, it's like we're on a road trip with Matthew, and he's like, look over there. Did you see what Jesus did there? And did you see when he said that? Look, and he healed that guy, and he fed 5,000 people, and then he's like, wait, 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 wait. Now watch this. 
and watch closely. And this is what we've been doing as a church. We've slowed down and started to, to walk slowly through what Jesus has to say and do, even just in this first chapter. So as a church, let's take a deep breath in and take a deep breath out, and let's listen to what Matthew has to say in the text. So it says here, Jesus entered the temple courts. Okay, stop there. Don't worry, I'm not going to do this every time. <laughs> You're like, oh, shoot. <laughs> no, this is super important. Since we've been intentionally slowing down and listening to what Matthew is trying to tell us, there's some things that we may miss that Matthew is subtly trying to clue us in on. So, for example, if we were all first century followers of Jesus, listening to Matthew's gospel be read out loud, most likely because we would be illiterate in that time, and so we would have someone reading it to us. If we were listening to this read all the way through in one go, we'd pick up that Matthew has used this term, Jesus entered the temple courts earlier in the chapter. Does anyone know when that was? What happened the last time Jesus entered the temple courts? Yeah, he started flipping over the tables, rearranging the furniture. He pulled that prophetic stunt in the temple. And so what Matthew's doing is by saying Jesus entered the temple courts, he wants us to feel the anticipation about what Jesus is going to do next when he enters the temple courts. And everyone else in the temple is feeling that same anticipation. Jesus comes back into the temple to start teaching, and they have no idea what he's going to do next. And so while he's teaching so that he doesn't start flipping over tables again, they corner him. And we read, Jesus entered the temple courts. And while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven? or of human origin. They discussed it among themselves and said, well, if we say from heaven, then he'll ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we're afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. So this is the beginning of a long confrontation between Jesus and the religious authorities in Jerusalem. This will lead us all the way through chapter 26 when they finally decide that they're just done with him and they're going to kill him. So Matthew is intentionally turning up the heat in his situation, with Jesus' situation and the religious authorities. He's bringing more tension between the kingdom that Jesus is bringing and the kingdom of the religious elite. And even though this is just a few verses, there's a lot that Matthew wants us to pick up on. But for the sake of time, we're only going to focus on two things. And the first is this, that Jesus is the ultimate authority over the temple. Israel's leaders ask Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you that authority? And so that term that Matthew's using, these things, is referencing everything we've read from the triumphal entry 
until now, where we find Jesus healing and teaching in the temple. And for the religious leaders, Jesus was not a priestly or scribal authority in Jerusalem. So by doing these things in the temple, he's abrasively going against the cultural understanding of who has authority in, the, in this sphere of life. And also, by asking Jesus what authority he has, the religious leaders are continuing a thread we find all the way through Matthew's gospel. If we were to describe Matthew's, gospel, or Matthew's portrayal of Jesus in one word, it would most likely be the word authority. Matthew has intentionally placed specific things that Jesus has authority all throughout his gospel. So we read that Jesus has authority over Satan in chapter 4. He has authority over the law in chapters 5 and 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, his teaching for his disciples and those who follow him. We read that he has, disease, or he has authority over disease, sickness, and the demonic in chapter 8. He has authority over sin in chapter 9 authority over the Sabbath in chapter 12. We see that in two instances, he has authority over the weather in chapters 8 and 14. And then in this story specifically, we see that he has authority over Jerusalem and the temple. And then in the future, we're going to continue on to read about how Jesus even has authority over King David himself. And in chapter 27, when Jesus is crucified, and the sign that's placed above him that reads, this is the king of the Jews, is Matthew's way of saying that Jesus even has authority over Israel. And then lastly, in chapter 28, with the Great Commission, Jesus reveals that he has authority over all of creation. And so all of this, everything up here, is Matthew's long-winded way of saying that Jesus has authority over everything, over the temple, over sin, over death and life. Jesus has authority over it all. And New Testament scholar Richard B. Hayes actually puts it this way. He says, the world, according to Matthew, is a world stabilized and given meaning by the authoritative presence of Jesus Christ. Okay, so why is this important? Why does it matter that Jesus has authority over the temple for 21st century followers of Jesus in San Diego? Well, if you think of it this way, let's say that the Vatican and Hollywood both moved to Washington, D.C. That would be very similar for us to the significance of the temple to an ancient Jewish people. It's the center of political, cultural, and religious authority. And let's just say Jesus is a man from somewhere in the middle of nowhere America. I don't know, like Lincoln, Nebraska. If you're from Lincoln, Nebraska, I don't mean to bash it at all. That was just the first thing that popped into my mind. Um, let's say he comes from Lincoln, Nebraska, goes to Washington, D.C., marches down Pennsylvania Avenue, stands on the South Lawn, and claims authority over the White House, over the Vatican, over Hollywood. That would be the same thing that someone in Jesus' day would have seen that. And this is the shocking claim of Christianity, even today, that Jesus, a backwater rabbi from first century Palestine, 
has authority over the very center of our lives. And the temple now, for followers of Jesus, is no longer a building in Jerusalem, but it's the people that gather, the church. So by being the temple, Jesus has authority over us, and that's what Matthew's trying to get at. And this leads us to the second thing that Matthew wants us to key in on, which is this. The religious authorities are blind to who Jesus truly is because of their fear of the crowd. So that response that Jesus gives where he says, I'll ask you a question before I answer yours, is not just some stall tactic. He's asking the leaders of Israel what they believe about John the Baptist because his authority is wound up in John's baptism. Dale Bruner says it this way. He says, Jesus' question is tantamount to an answer. It clearly suggests that Jesus believes both the baptism of John and his own authority are from God. And so with his response, the leaders of Israel are now in the hot seat. He's turned the tables, and how they answer his question will actually reveal what they truly believe about Jesus. So we read on. They discussed it among themselves and said, well, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we're afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And this answer that they give, this answer reveals not only that they don't believe Jesus or John, but that they are more afraid of the crowds than they are of God. And this is the very thing that Jesus is going to mourn over in a few chapters when he says that he is God in the flesh coming to rescue his people, but they won't receive him. And this is also a dire warning from Matthew to the church not to follow the crowd like the religious leaders. Because one of the most dangerous things the American church can do is cater to the crowd, or in today's language, the culture. And unfortunately, this is all too common within the American church. We get caught up in what culture says is the ultimate goal in life, and what's good. But we need to be reminded that the goals of culture are good, but they aren't ultimate. This is that idea of being in the world, but not of it. We could even swap out the word world for the word culture, and we could say that as Christians, we are in the culture, but we are not of the culture. We are not to be products of our culture. But instead, we create a counterculture that is more in line with the kingdom that Jesus teaches about. Because honestly, guys, our culture wants the kingdom that Jesus preaches about. They want it so bad. The kingdom where there's justice for the oppressed, (laughs) where people are restored to health, where there's no more racism or war or poverty, 
or sexism, but they don't want the king who brings it. And when the church buys into this belief, the belief that we can have the kingdom without the king, that there isn't a new world to look forward to, we will begin to give up discipleship to Jesus for the sake of relevance. Because justice opportunities are good. Having a community group that goes to the bars for drinks and dinner is good. Practical advice that we can give on Sundays that helps better our lives and the lives of others is good. These are all good things, and they can come from the church. But they can also come from outside the church. And people outside the church are focused on these things too, and that's still good because that's a part of the Imago Dei, the image of God that's inside all of us that desires these things. But if you're a Christian whose primary desire is to be relevant, then you can easily focus on all these things and neglect the sexual ethic of Jesus. Or you can avoid committing to a community for the long haul a community of people that are different ages than you, different gender than you. Mark Sayers, a cultural commentator, and he's a church leader from Australia, he puts it this way. If you still want to keep your sneaker toe in the Christian camp, that, that reveals that he's Australian already. I don't even need to tell you that. If you still want to keep your sneaker toe in the Christian camp, no problem. Just pick up a book, or subscribe to that podcast by a progressive Christian author who will reassure you that you can still be a Christian while not getting too stressed about sex or scripture or going to church. In an increasingly world-focused evangelical church, what looks like leaving faith or church to the actual leaver simply seems like a small shimmy to the left in which the beautiful world promises that you can have it all. This is so prevalent today, especially around Christians my age. Some of us grew up with parents who were so focused on going to heaven when you died, on the next world, that they neglected and forgot about this world. They were the epitome of they're too heavenly-minded to do any earthly good. And so our reaction, the younger generation of Christians, it's been a pendulum swing in the other direction. Our focus has been mostly on what we can do here and now with the neglect to the kingdom that's coming. And I can't tell you how often I've heard this said and how often I used to say this all the time, and I quote, God cares more about the poor than my sex life or my lust, or what I wear, or you, you fill in the blank. And I just want to say, no, that's not true. What we're actually saying when we say that is I don't want God to care about my sex life. I don't want God to care about my lust. We can't put God in this false dichotomy box. We can't make God that, that small. God cares so much more than we could ever think about the poor. 
and he cares so much more than we could ever think about our sex life. And this is, this is the tension that Christians have to live in. The world that we're in now and the world to come. C.S. Lewis helps us understand how not to use this false dichotomy, how to live in that tension when he says this. If you read history, you will find that Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. You guys, the religious leaders were so focused on what culture had to say that they missed who was standing right in front of them. And as a church, let's not make that same mistake. Because if we end up catering to culture, just like the religious leaders, we may actually hear Jesus respond the same way to us when he says, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Or in other words, you won't get to see what God is actually up to. So Israel's leaders have chosen. They've chosen to follow the crowd instead of follow Jesus, and Jesus is about to let them have it. Jesus is going to tell us three parables. These three parables are about the religious leaders, and it explains to them how they've missed Jesus and his kingdom. But for today, we're only going to focus on the first parable. So there's three parables as a whole. We're going to go over the other two next week. But for time's sake, we're only going to focus on this first one. Jesus goes on and he says, what do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. So this is where Jesus is going to get really practical for us. These parables as a whole, the three that we're going to read through in the next two weeks, reveal what the kingdom of God is really like. These parables subvert the current world. It's the first thing they do. They take the world that we live in, the world that Jesus and his disciples were living in, and they subvert it. And then the second thing is they establish the true world that Jesus is bringing in his kingdom, the upside-down kingdom. And this parable, this first one that we're going to read, specifically is about the religious leaders and their standing in the kingdom. 
So Jesus described the situation as a father who has two sons and he asked them to go work. The first son says that he won't, but then changes his mind and ends up going and working in the vineyard anyway. The second son says he will, and then ends up not going. And the answer to this question is pretty obvious. Who did the will of the father? Anyone? The first son. And the religious leaders, they get it right. But they don't realize that by answering that question right, they've just condemned themselves, and Jesus is going to tell them why. He says, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom ahead of you because John came to show you the way of righteousness and you didn't believe him. And that term, the way of righteousness, is Jesus referring to John's message in the beginning of Matthew's gospel. When John's standing at the Jordan and he's saying, I am the voice in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. So Matthew is calling his readers, just as Jesus is calling the religious leaders, to go back, look back at John's message. And if you've believed John from the beginning, you would know that my authority is from heaven and that I've come from God. And even though the religious leaders, they had the law, they had the Torah, which Jesus said pointed to him, and if you believed the law, that you would believe him. And they not only had the law, but they had John, They had the law and they had the prophet John calling them back, back to God's heart. And they were still like the second son who said that they would totally go and work, but then end up not doing it. And so this parable, what Jesus is doing with this parable is he's separating Israel into two camps. The first camp is those who do the will of the Father. And the other camp is those who do not. And I know that this passage and this parable is not that happy, feel-good Jesus, get us good like Sunday morning vibes as we go off to brunch. But if we claim to follow Jesus, then we have to take him at his word. And this parable about the religious leaders is a warning for us today. It's a warning for us who are professing Christians and also leaders in the church. So example number one, myself. As someone who's standing here right now on stage and whose job description in the moment is to teach the scriptures and also shepherd the people of this church, Jesus is warning me specifically not just to say, yes, Lord, on Sunday, and that I will do your will, and I will tell other people to do your will and then not actually go and do it the rest of the week, to not do what my Father has asked me. I mean, even just writing this sermon this week, it brought up all of the areas in the last week where I knew what my Father wanted me to do, and then I actually didn't do it. One specific example that I think of is I have a neighbor who moved in like I don't know, maybe a month ago, and I pass her by, and I don't know her name. And I know that Jesus says to love your neighbor, but I don't even know the name of the person who is literally my neighbor, the person whose next door I share a wall with. I don't even know who they are. That's not the way of Jesus, and Jesus is calling that out. And our desire for Park Hill 
would be that we are not just creating passionate converts that show up on Sunday mornings. That's great. And we love that. But that's not just what we're doing. We're not just creating passionate converts that show up on Sunday mornings, but disciplined communities of apprentices to Jesus that put his teachings into practice. Because our actions reveal more about what we believe than anything else. What we do, what we say, what we wear, all reveals a little bit about what we believe about ourselves, about this world, and about who we are in Jesus. So I can think of when I was a runner in high school, most people would probably think that because runners have such fit bodies that they'd be super confident. But that doesn't mean that a lot of the times we're trying to hide things and hide our insecurities. It's actually only been recently that I've come to this realization that specifically guy runners, when they stop running, immediately start lifting weights. And that's because even though we probably wouldn't admit it out loud, we were actually really insecure about the size of our upper body. And so to compensate, we would wear really short cutoff shorts to school, like you do. That's the reasonable response to having a small upper body. And people would always comment, people would always comment on our legs because they were the only part of our body that actually had muscle on them. Which, that's not even a joke, that's just a sad reality. But now I realize that even though I was following Jesus at that time, that showed a lot of immaturity and immodesty on my part. I wasn't thinking about what I was wearing as a piece of discipleship toward Jesus. And I know it's not super common to hear stories about immodesty in guys in our culture, but men and women both need to think about what we wear as a form of discipleship. This might be an area in your life where Jesus is saying, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? And on the other side of this parable, Jesus talks about the tax collectors and sinners who first said they wouldn't do the will of the Father, but then end up actually doing it anyway. And this was me in high school. I was just beginning to really follow Jesus. I was sold out on his love, but I was also immodest and lustful and arrogant in so many ways. But I was lucky enough to have people who didn't shame me for being inconsistent, but instead lovingly helped me become more disciplined as a follower of Jesus. And this may be a lot of you this morning. So many of you are coming here and starting to realize who Jesus truly is and the love that he has for you and the call on your life. And as a leadership team, we are so, so honored that this is the place where God's doing that work in you. But as a leader here, my urge to you 
this morning would be to listen to the Holy Spirit and ask him to call out areas in your life that are not under his authority. And while you're listening, he may begin to reveal things to you. And while that's happening, emotions might start coming up because of that. Emotions of guilt and shame. And I really want to help us chart these emotions in a really healthy way. Because feeling guilty is good. I don't know where in our culture this is start to, be, start to creep up, saying that if you feel guilty for something, that's bad. Guilt is really good. Guilt is conviction from the Holy Spirit. We need to know when we're wrong. That's the definition of guilt, to know that you're wrong. We need to know when we've been living in a false narrative or that we've hurt someone. But shame, shame is not from God. Shame is a lie from the enemy that says you are less of a human because you messed up. And shame does not belong in the house of God. And I just want to rebuke any sense of shame that's going through anyone's minds and hearts right now. Shame is not allowed. I mean, could you think about this? Could you imagine if more and more people could understand the difference between guilt and shame in our culture? If politicians and teachers and friends and even pastors could realize when they're wrong, admit that they're wrong, and move forward in truth with joy. That a politician wouldn't be seen as flip-flopping on an issue, but instead could be like, I was wrong before, and now I'm ready to move towards the truth. So as we come to the table today, I want all of us to think about Jesus' parable and think of the areas in our life that we need to submit to him. Maybe some of you this morning are realizing that maybe you're neglecting your husband or wife emotionally. Maybe some of you are realizing that you haven't been honest with your family, whether it's your immediate family, your Park Hill community, your group of friends that you consider family. Whatever it is, come to the table in repentance. Because the point of Jesus' parable is that those who turn to Jesus in repentance are those who enter the kingdom first. Repentance is such a beautiful word, and we need to include it in our vocabulary more often. And I'm thinking just this morning for myself personally, I think an area that the Holy Spirit is convicting me of is that I need to learn how to ask forgiveness from God and from other people with joy. Because I have personally had the association that being wrong is shameful. But whatever it is for you, Know that Jesus is here, and he's ready and eager to bring you into his kingdom.
And I know sermons typically end with a call to action and to kingdom living. But we also want to honor how Jesus ends this parable. And Jesus ends with a word of warning to those who do not believe John's message about Jesus. And this is the warning. Those who refuse to believe John's message, that Jesus is the authority over all our lives, over our pursuit of justice, our sex lives, our stubbornness, our desires, will find themselves outside the kingdom. While those who have chosen the freedom of turning to Jesus in repentance will experience life to the full in this world and in the world to come. And so I'm going to have the band come up. And during the first song, the tables are going to be open. So during the first song, go to the tables. There's a few to my left and to my right. And I want you to take the bread and the cup and bring it back to your seats. And Tanika is going to lead us in eating and drinking. But as we're going to the table, I want us to ask two questions. Two questions that I want to sit with us. And these are the two questions. Who has authority over my life? We all have someone or something that's an authority over my over our lives. And who is it? Is it culture or the crowds? Or is it Jesus? The second question is this. Where in my life can I turn to Jesus in repentance? Would you all stand with me? Father, Thank you so much for your word. Holy Spirit, thank you for conviction. Thank you for being so present with us and so in love with us that you won't let us be wrong. You desire us to turn from our wrong and move towards what is right, beautiful, and true. May we be humble enough to recognize your authority over our lives and to recognize that you are good and you're calling us to the way of righteousness that you've been calling your people to from the beginning. So the tables are open during this first song. Go grab the bread and the cup and bring it back to your seats.